welcome to Bible Foundations, where we go through books of the Bible one chapter at a time. Let me remind you where you can watch this, or you can also listen to it as well. You can listen through iTunes or Spotify. Type in Bible Foundations with Ben Dixon. Also on YouTube, my channel is called Ignite Global Ministries. You can subscribe to that, and there's a playlist called Bible Foundations with Ben Dixon. I also have another podcast called Conversations, where every other week we're putting together a conversation, hopefully to encourage and equip you. Now today we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3 because we're following through the whole letter of 1 Peter. It's been a great time together, so grab your Bible and open it up to chapter 3. And what I want to do before we dive in is I'm going to do a little bit of a review for chapter 2, and then also we'll read sections at a time that helps a little bit so we can stay focused on the content that we are reading. Now, when we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, there's four things that we talked about. The first one was Peter opens up with necessary actions for growth. Peter was encouraging these scattered believers to renounce their former way of life, including their actions and their attitudes. This was essential, especially in light of their difficulties. We've already talked about suffering and all the difficulties that they were facing, and we've related that to the things that we go through as well. And so these are necessary actions for growth. If we want to grow, we got to take some steps, and he gave us some advice for that. We also looked at we are a chosen people. Now, of course, Peter's writing to his original readers, but he's conveying their identity as the people of God. Jesus is the head. We are the body. Jesus is the cornerstone. We are the living stones that are built up into a holy house, of, that he inhabits by the power of his Holy Spirit. Jesus is the high priest. We are a priesthood unto him. And so these metaphors, which are some of just biblical realities, are really just to say that we are sons and daughters of God. We are the people of the living God. We're following him. Our identity in him matters. And so he conveys that uh, to them, knowing who you are in Jesus is of utmost importance and then thirdly, he talked about honoring all those who are in authority. We are exiles in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven, and therefore we need to walk in a way in reverence and honor with those that we live around, those that we subject ourselves to in the governing authorities for the Lord's sake. He talks about the purpose and the mission of Jesus, and so if we want to accomplish what Jesus has called us to, it must be that we live at peace with all men as much as it depends on us so that we can go about doing what Jesus has called us to. And the last part that we talked about in chapter two was that Jesus is our great example. And that's in all things, in every way, every day, we follow Jesus, not just where he goes, but also the way that he did things. We wanna be like him in everything that we say and do. So it's words and it's actions. And this is important because when we think about following Jesus, it's not just something we say, it's that we look at his life as a pattern for how we're to live as well, the nature, the character, the virtue of Christ. And so in chapter three, we were built on this foundation of all these various things that we talked about. And there's a number of things that I first want to start by just reading verses one through six, where he's going to give a word to the wives, not wise, a word to the wives. And here's what it says, starting in verse one. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be, let it be the hidden person of the heart 
with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in the former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now, there's a bunch here, and some of it's cultural, some of it's contextual, but I'm calling this a word to the wives. Now, verse 1, he says, in the same way. Now, this refers to the previous chapter where he talks about, number one, submitting to governing authorities for the Lord's sake. So you're submitting yourself willingly. You're choosing to do that. The word here in submission is the same word that's used there. I think it's verse 13, chapter 2. So we're wives put yourselves under your husband's. You, you want to come under, and it's not just in action, but it's also in attitude, and you're doing it for the Lord's sake. And then he gives Jesus as an example, the son submitted to the father. As you notice, each one of these examples has, um, it's it being used as sort of a picture for wives to husbands. There's a mission, there's a purpose. And then he actually goes into saying that what submission is really about. In other words, submission is not about submission. It's not about how good you are at submitting. It carries a higher goal and a higher authority. The highest authority is God. So if we submit to someone, if if you're a woman and you're married, as a wife, you submit to your husband because you have a higher authority, and that's God. You have a higher goal, and that's to reach his heart. That's to build a legacy. That's to teach and train your children. That's to live in such a way where people see family and they're drawn to what God designed. This is what it's all about. It's not being independent. It's not being subordinate. It's not being yourself or individualistic. It's very important that we do things together and that we understand how God's designed us, made us, created us, and how that comes together, particularly in this context, um, in marriage. And so we've got to understand that submission isn't about losing your identity. It's about having a collective identity as a family. But it isn't just because women are lesser. It isn't because women don't get it or women don't have gifting or skill or ability. It's not because women are lesser. It is because women carry something that God put inside of them, God designed them with, and it functions a certain way as the married couple comes together. It's like Legos. They fit together. Husbands and wives fit together. And we have to yield to each other in order for that to actually work. And so that's what Peter's talking about. But he goes on, look at this. He says, submit to your own husband so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word, but by the behavior of their wives. So he's almost assuming that there will be some men that are not obedient to the word. They don't love the Lord. And so the way that their wives are can win them over. This type of behavior, this submission, this love for their husbands, it has a power in it that can win them over. And so this is what Peter's talking about. Remember, I said higher goal with higher authority. Verse 2, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your holy behavior, chaste meaning your holy behavior brings conviction. When other people aren't living right and you choose to live right, he's specifically talking to wives, but this could apply to anybody as well. When we live right in the contrast of those not living right in a consistent manner, it brings about a conviction 
where people eventually will ask questions. You could say, well, there's exceptions to that. Sure, there are exceptions to that. That maybe isn't going to happen all the time. But Peter's saying this to women, specifically wives, because it will bring this about, and there is a greater hope that they can cling to. And then in verse 3 and 4, he says, your adornment must not be external, braiding hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. But then he talks about it being the inner person. This is about priorities and focus. He's not saying that you shouldn't wear uh, gold jewelry or you shouldn't braid your hair. I don't know if braiding of the hair is a big deal anymore. But anyways, he's talking about putting on dresses. He's saying it's not about the external. It's about the internal. Having a value system where your focus is your honor of God, what's on the inside, your behavior, your action, your attitude. This is more important than anything on the outside. It's all about value system. Jesus taught the way of self-denial, not the way of self-expression. And that flies right in the face of our culture. Our, our culture is all about you being you, you being yourself, you expressing yourself, uh, being who you want to be, all of that. We all do have, um, we all are individuals. They're all, self-expression's not entirely bad. But where self-expression takes over for self-denial, it is bad because we're not trying to act like Jesus, we're trying to act like ourselves, whatever that might mean. And so Peter here is encouraging women, wives, because that higher goal is to reach their husbands, because some of them are disobedient to the word. And you could actually even multiply that and say other people that are watching the family, it's going gonna, it's gonna to touch their lives. And this is, what, uh, this is what he goes on to saying here. He's saying, this is precious in the sight of God. That word means costly, high value. Now think about that for a minute. God values women who focus on what's right on the inside and not just what's right on the outside. Think about our culture today. It is pushing hard and fast everything on the outside. I, I mean, I can't even imagine what some young girls feel in terms of pressure just because of Instagram and social media alone, TikTok and these and these other apps. Now, I'm not demonizing all of that. I'm just simply saying the pressure for women to look a certain way and to be a certain way and to behave a certain way. This verse is not, uh, it's not meant to restrain. It's actually meant to bring freedom. It's, it's, not, it's not meant to put somebody in incarceration of like, I need to be this certain kind of woman. No, no, no. The culture's already doing that. This is actually meant to liberate a woman into her God-given destiny, that God's put something on the inside that is more valuable than any pressure for you to look a certain way on the outside. And it says, this is precious or costly to God. And so if you're a married woman, this is something that the Lord looks at and smiles upon. This is what he calls you into. It's very, very powerful when you think of it uh, this way. And then Peter says, there are women that you can look to in the scripture who did things a certain way um, as a form of dignity and respect and honor, and God really smiled on that. In verse 5, he says, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now again, real quickly, <laughs> that can be offensive at, at times to women. That word Lord can mean master, and that was a common word that was used Wait, we're talking thousands of years ago. It's not a terminology we would use today, easy to get offended, but that's not what's meant. The point here is, is that there was a focus from Sarah, and she, was, she submitted to Abraham. 
I doubt she understood Abraham getting up in the morning saying, hey, we're going to go to the, we're going to leave the Ur of Chaldeans, the place that we've known, all of our family, everything, all of our memories. We're leaving all that behind because God told me we need to go to a land that we do not know. It, listen, it took a man of faith to do that, but it took a woman of faith to do that as well, because she had to pick everything up alongside him and say, I believe that you're hearing God. And maybe she didn't believe that. Maybe she struggled. But what you don't hear a lot about is Sarah. And so it's interesting that this passage highlights that. Peter is highlighting Sarah in this passage to women, saying, think about what she had to do. When we talk about Abraham, the man of faith, there was a woman behind him that was a woman of faith. And this is the attitude and the action that we need to honor. And God looked upon Sarah and smiled. It was costly the way that she acted, the attitude that she had, it was costly. And it's worthy to bring up. And I'm thankful that that Peter brings it up because we're talking about dignity and respect and what God sees. But then in verse seven, he moves from a word to the wives to a word to the husbands. And look what verse seven says. You husbands, in the same way, there's that terminology again, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, this is pretty loaded as well. Culturally, once again, this is written 2,000 years ago, and so we may not understand what's going on here. But verse 7, he says, in the same way, this means that husbands also have to submit to the Lord, and that's what he's calling them into. And he says, you need to be in such, you need to live your life in such a way where you understand and you honor your wife and you learn how to live that makes her yielding to you a joy. It's sort of like a person that says, you need to respect me. Well, the fact is, is if you're living a respectable life, it draws some, it draws respect out of people toward you. So it's a both end. You can't demand respect more than you're living a respectable life. And so that's why Peter is going right after the husband saying, you need to live in such a way where it draws out from your wife this very thing, and it makes it a joy to her. And then he says, knowing that she's the weaker vessel. This simply means that she has less physical strength. I know sometimes people use it in different ways, but it doesn't mean that. I don't know any scholars that I've read that think it means anything other than physical strength. And in their culture, this would this would mean that the man was to cover the home. This means that the man was to provide for the home in that culture. It's, it's what it was talking about. But also, it means that the man's supposed to be gentle to his wife. He's physically stronger than her. He could overpower her. And I want you to hear this because you probably, I don't know that I've heard this before, but as I was studying this verse, something that I realized is that this actually was flying in the face of abuse. Think about it with me for a second. He says, knowing that your wife is the weaker vessel. Look at this. Since she is a woman, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. This is about essential equality. She is a fellow heir. She is essentially equal as you inherit the, gr- the grace uh, of life, eternal life. This is actually an anti-abuse verse right here. Just because it doesn't say it in our modern cultural terms does not mean that's, that isn't what he's talking about. It's actually what, he, what he's saying. Because your wife isn't as physically strong as you, you need to understand and be gentle to her You need to not be abusive to her in your speech and also physically speaking. 
There's no doubt that he meant these kinds of things. And you need to remember that she's a fellow heir of the grace of life. Why would he say that? Because there were probably men that weren't living like that. He's not saying it because it wasn't an issue. He's saying it because it probably was an issue and he needed to say it. And so that's a very important piece of this. And then he goes further by saying, look at this in verse seven. He says, she's a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers might not be hindered. This is really important. If a man mistreats his wife, this verse suggests that his prayers would be hindered. If a man doesn't treat his wife with understanding, respect, and honor, his his prayers may be hindered. Now, why would that be? The Bible says to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Where your closest neighbor is going to be your wife to you men. This is a word to you men. Your closest neighbor is going to be your wife. If you have a type of spirituality where you go away and pray and read your Bible, but then you come home and you don't treat your wife with respect, honor, and love, and the same goes for your family, and you're a man of God, something is out of order. And that's what Peter's calling out here. God is pleased for men to express love, especially to those that are closest to them. If you want to know what your spirituality is, you need to look into the face of your spouse. This is the way you can see as to whether or not you really are a person that obeys the Word of God, loves people as Jesus has called you to, and really manifests the character of Christ. If we're going to try to live some type of other spirituality that doesn't touch down in our home, that doesn't minister to our wife, that doesn't draw something better out of them, then he's saying that you your spirituality that's separate from how you treat your household could actually cause you to have hindered prayers. In other words, God wants you to make it right with your family, with your wife, before he wants you to come and sort of have some separate spirituality where you're praying to God and thinking you have something special with him that doesn't equate to how you love people in your house the most. And that's a very sober reality for us as men. We need to take that very seriously and honor and love and respect our wives in such a way where it draws something better out of them not because we're better than them, but because we have a role and we have a ministry to them. In verse eight, he moves from wives, husbands, to pretty much everybody. And I'll read a couple verses. He says, to sum sum up, all you uh, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life, this is Psalm 34 that he's quoting from now, for the one who desires life to love and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And then he goes into another section um, that we'll wait on just a moment. So Peter moves from this encouragement of wives and husbands to pretty much everybody. And he gives all these things that I want you to be. He's like, I want you to be sympathetic. And um, I want you you to be brotherly. And I want you to be kind-hearted and harmonious. And I want you to be humble in spirit. And then he makes this comment. And he says, because you were called to bless and to receive a blessing. Have you ever thought about what it means to bless someone? He's saying, don't revile when being reviled. Don't insult when you're being insulted. And then he says, but you were called to bless. Okay, so I'm being mistreated. 
People are saying things to me they shouldn't say. This is verbal because it's insult and revile. It's not physical persecution here. So if I'm being verbally uh, abused, not husband, wife, but let's just say I'm persecuted in that way, he's saying, here's what you need to do. You need to bless instead of curse. Well, where do we learn that from? That's what Jesus said. He said, bless your enemies. Now, here's the question. What does it mean to bless? We can say that, but what is he talking about? This is what he means. He means that we need to pray for and we need to speak well of. When a blessing was pronounced over and upon someone, it was that they were spoken well of and they were prayed for. In other words, you can't, you can't just say it, you have to pray it. It is a both and. You don't just pray it, you also need to say it. So it's a pronouncement and it's intercession. That's what it is. It's the combination of both. That's why Jesus also says in his Sermon on the Mount, you need to pray for those that despitefully use you. Look at that. Bless your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you. He actually gives both. Why? Because that's, in my opinion, the totality of a blessing. We say and we also pray. And so it's important that we do that. But then he quotes Psalm 34 because the psalmist um, is talking about blessing others and that when we do this, we are acting like the Lord. And so that's what it's really all about. Now, from there, we look at, again, this is not just the first time, but it's probably the third time where he's talking about we need to suffer well. Look what he says here. I'm going to start again in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you would suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. And then he goes on from there. What's he talking about? This is very, very clear. Even if you should so this is a reference made because it shouldn't be expected that the outcome when you do right and righteously, that you're going to get automatically persecuted. It's actually the exception. He's saying, if you do good and you honor well and you love and you're harmonious and you're sympathetic and you're, you're brotherly and you're kind-hearted, if you do all of this, if, you're, if your attitude and your behavior is such that you're revealing and releasing the character of Christ— you shouldn't expect that in response to that, you're going to get persecution. But he's saying, even if you should. So sometimes it will happen. In other words, you're going to act righteously and you're going to receive unrighteousness as a direct result of that. So it shouldn't be expected as a norm, but you should be equipped for it when it happens because it might happen. And so he goes on from there to quote Isaiah chapter 8. And this is where um, basically... He's, he's talking about, do not fear the intimidation, do not be troubled. Well, why, why is he saying some of that? Because when you look at Isaiah chapter 8, they're fearing the invasion of the ungodly. And Isaiah the prophet says, don't fear the invasion of the ungodly. And then he says, sanctify in your heart Christ as Lord. Now, we could talk forever about the fear of the Lord. Don't fear man, fear the Lord. Have a reverential awe. Live before God in your attitude, in your actions, what you say, what you do, where you go, how you spend your money, how you treat your spouse, how you treat your kids, how you treat people that are unbelievers and believers, how you approach situations. Sanctify Christ as Lord. This is, this is about reverencing Christ in all of your way of life. 
this is the call that Peter's essentially making, no matter what the context of life could be, whether you're being persecuted, whether you're being praised, doesn't matter. We have to sanctify Christ as Lord, whether we're receiving compliments or criticisms. We have to be a people who are doing what we do because we fear God. We don't fear men. We don't speak out of the fear of man. We speak out of the reverence and the awe of God. We want to please Him no matter what we're walking through. That is our aim in life. And I believe that's exactly what he's talking about. And so that when people see our manner of life, they're going to ask about why we are the way we are. And he says, make sure that you have a defense for the hope that lies within you, that you're equipped to do that, that you're able to answer people when they ask of you. And if you live this way, they actually will ask you that. Well, he goes from that into a little bit more controversial passage of scripture, which I'll read to you. He says, for Christ also died for sins. This is verse 18 once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Who are the spirits now in prison? Now, there's a lot of debate over this, but I think it's safe to say these are fallen angels. These are not people that have died uh, before the cross and the resurrection. Uh, These are the disobedient, and this is why we think that. Look what he says here. in verse 20, who, he's talking about those, those those spirits who are now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water corresponding to that. So you park right there. He doesn't give us a lot, but he gives us enough to say, going all the way back to Noah and the ark, he's saying the spirits that are in prison. Now, I believe that he's talking about Jesus, when Jesus died and he was dead for a few days before he rose from the dead, in the realm of the spirit, this is just the, uh, you know, this is just the thought here, is that he proclaimed, he didn't preach the good news or preach the gospel, but he proclaimed victory, his death and now about to be his resurrection, he he proclaimed victory to the spirits that were in prison, the disobedient spirits from long ago. This is all the way back to Noah's time. And he's not talking about dead people. Uh, most people believe he's talking about these uh, demonic powers. And really, we don't have more on that, so it's hard to say anything beyond that. So we'll just move on. Um, he goes on to say, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water, corresponding to that baptism now saves you, not the removal of the dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after the angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. And that's another reason why people think that this is fallen angels is because now he's referencing authorities, angels, and all of that. Some people think those disobedient spirits in prison are people And they're in some type of prison, uh, not purgatory, but some place waiting for the proclamation of the gospel. When Jesus died, he went down into hell, some would say, and he he preached to all those that had died before he had uh, gone to the cross. I don't see that here. I don't have a theology for that. I think he's talking about disobedient spirits. It's just a proclamation of victory. It's not a preaching of the good news. That's what I believe that it means. Um, it's hard to understand. I totally admit that, uh, but that's why there's a lot of debate as to what exactly is being talked about here. But then he says, corresponding to that baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God. So he's using 
the flood as a form of baptism, right? And the same is used for Exodus chapter 14, where the Red Sea is parted and the people who were captive to Egypt, and now they're going to move into the desert before they go into the promised land. They go through the Red Sea on dry land, and then Paul actually talks to us in the book of Romans about how that's a form of baptism, where it's really just symbolic of how baptism cleanses us. Baptism, it's a reflection of our dying in Christ, and then we come up out of the water and we're raised again to new life. But these were types and shadows, the baptism of the Red Sea, the baptism of Noah's Ark. And so he's basically talking about baptism in that sense, is that he's just reflecting on um, on how that baptism was in Noah's day was, was a sense of a salvation. It was a saving, not an eternal salvation, the way we would save, because some people will say, you have to be baptized to be saved. That's not exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about deliverance. But that deliverance in the Old Covenant would speak of an eternal deliverance in the New Covenant. That's why we practice baptism as not just a symbolic thing, but a reality of what Christ has done inside of us. And so these uh, scriptures are always debated. Scholars talk a lot about the second half of 1 Peter chapter 3, but I think it's really just meant to be a reference that is simple, that when Jesus died, he proclaimed victory of what he had taken back for the whole human race because he was dying in our place. He rose again, proving he was the Son of God, and he also and he not only proclaimed victory, but he obtained victory in Jesus' name. And that's what we know. And so listen, there's a lot more that we need to study, but we're not going to do that today because that's 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to jump into that in two weeks. But thank you for tuning into Bible Foundations as we continue to go through the book of 1 Peter. And I'm looking forward to going through 1 Peter chapter 4 with you. So I'll see you again next time. God bless you.